Hello? Hi, Peter. Kurt. Okay, we're ready, and I'll patch into the other line. Okay. Hello? Hello? This is Hello? Kurt. Yes, Kurt there. Uh, am I back into the uh, ontolog session? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, we are being recorded, and uh, this begins our uh, conference call. This is 2005, uh, March 31st, and is a scheduled ontolog discussion. Today's topic is issues associated with converting ontologies between representations, and especially uh, via protege imports and exports. Uh, Kurt Conrad, our co-convener, uh, will be moderating the session. So it's all yours, Kurt. Okay. Uh, two two quick notes as we get started. First, I'm fighting a cold, so I may not be as clear as normal. Let me know if you can't understand me. Um, secondly, while you all get Van Morrison, I get to listen to Sade on the uh, other line. And the thing I love about her is you're always waiting for her to actually hit the pitch. She tends to sing flat. But anyway, that was just what I got to experience. Uh, the note, I've got Mark, Ray, Oliver, James, Peter, Adam, and Monica. Anybody else? Uh, uh, Chris Menzel's here. Chris Menzel? Okay. So well, I think what I'd like to do, I, I kind of look, looked at the topic and said, how can we get through this uh, in what is now close to a half hour? Um, and what I want to do is start with some opening statements. I'm going to try to hold each person to about a minute. So go ahead and, and tee off on whatever you want to say. And then what I'd like to do is go back around and let's list the representations that we're actually thinking about, make sure we get that list on the table. Then I'd like a brief round table, I think, on uh, the capabilities and limitations of each representation. And then once we work through that, I think we can then start to talk about specific one-on-one -on -one mappings and look at those in terms of which semantic properties can and can't be translated, and then wrap up in terms of tools and support. This outline will be adjusted based on the conversation. Um, quick poll from everybody. Do you want me to try to be heavy-handed and keep people on topic, or do you want it to spin out? Uh, could, uh, before you start, could we make sure everyone have, has access to at least the, uh, the uh, discussion page that that uh, that uh, starts with ontolog discussion converting ontologies March thirty first two o five. Everyone have access? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, um, I I don't have the URL for that. Uh, are you on this session, the call session page? Uh, I guess I'm not. Okay, so let's, let's get to the call session page first. I mean, that that is on the on the email, and yeah. and when you get there, uh, scroll down right before attendees. There's a a, a link that says discussion yeah. session page, and yeah. the link is there. Okay, go ahead. Hey, Peter, this is Pat. I just got in. Sorry, I'm late. Oh, great. Peter Neno is also joining. Fantastic. Okay, so at this stage we've got Mark, Ray, Oliver, James, Peter, Adam, Monica, Chris, Pat, and Peter Denno. Um, yeah, we've anybody got else everyone who, who we, uh, we, have, uh, we have been expecting, actually. Good. Okay, so let's go ahead and, and uh, oh, uh, on my question, you want me to try to move this thing smartly or just kind of let folks meander? 
Okay, I guess, I mean, we've got a phenomenal team of people here, so, so we'll, we'll rely on you to, to make sure we get make the best out of the session. Thanks for the guidance. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and start opening statements. Mark, you're at the top of the list. About a minute, please. Uh, I feel like I'm an attorney suddenly. Um, <laughs> I, I guess in some sense I'm, I'm not really sure where we're going to be going this, this morning, and I have to confess that until uh, the, uh, the website was pointed out to me, I didn't realize it was material that we were supposed to look at in advance. Um, I, let me just say a couple things. One is that these conversations about interconversion of uh, content usually emphasize the semantic features of languages. And the, these conversations usually um, almost uh, digress into minute comparisons of what various representations can and cannot represent. And I think that's valuable and important because it lets us know where we're going to lose information in making those conversions. What we often don't discuss are the cognitive issues of what it means to represent something in a particular representation. Uh, what uh, is easy for users to understand, and more important, what it means to be able to appreciate what something means when they see it in one representation versus another. And so I think it's important as we move forward this morning is that we not talk about only the, uh, the, the language capabilities but the ability of people to view different inf pieces of information in different representations and be a being able to apprehend what those uh, representations actually mean. So there's a, there's a cognitive element that often gets lost, and I want to make sure that we can, we, we, we can be thinking about that as well. Because particularly important when you think about uh, work that's been done now almost 10 years ago with, with KIF as a representation interchange format, where the goal, of course, was to translate between different representations using first-order logic as sort of the common denominator. That was a grand idea, except what it missed was that often people would be using various kinds of cliches as a common way of doing representation in one language versus another. And as soon as one uses the interchange format to go from one to another, those cliches get re-represented in ways which are not as cognitively apparent. And that's a real problem. Uh, could you uh, give examples of what you're, I'm not sure I follow what you're Mark, saying. Mark, I, I actually, now I'm going to jump in. Mark, I, I think that was an excellent introductory statement. I'm going to ask we move on. Ray? Yeah, Ray. Um, I don't actually have a, an introductory statement. I'm just I'm here to answer questions about RJ uh, import and export, and I'll, I'll attempt to do so. Okay. Uh, I'll pass off to the next person. Cool. Thank you. Um, Oliver? Well, just like Ray, I don't have any introductory statement. Sorry. <laughs> but, but his name is pronounced Olivier. I was just beginning to ask myself that question. Thank you. <laughs> so we, we prefer to anglicize it. Well, my son's name's Oliver, so it's really easy for me to say that. I'm used to it. But I'll, I'll, I'll switch over. Uh, James. Yeah, um, I also don't really necessarily have uh, a lot to, to say in the opening statements. Um, one thing that, that I would mention that I've run into in these exercises is trying to come up with some sort of canonical form or like standard format that I, I want to... Um, map the, um, the, the structures to um, when I'm doing this sort of thing. And, and that's um, one thing I'm hoping we'll, we'll discuss during this uh, conversation. Okay. I'm not completely sure I understand what you mean by canonical form in this context. And the second note is you're coming through very faint. 
Okay. Um, well, what I mean, what I mean is when you're um, defining uh, types and relations and that sort of thing, um, what uh, what sort of uh, structure you should use in, in terms of um, breaking apart those relations. Okay. Um, I know I, I've, I've run into this problem trying to trying to uh, map from XFD, for example, to OWL and, and um, trying to determine what uh, what should be a standard uh, model that I should I should use um, to start off with. Okay. From what language to OWL is that? Um, XSD. From XSD. XSD. Okay. Yeah. Schema, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks, James. Peter? Peter Yim. Okay. Uh, I, I, I totally agree, agree with uh, Mark. And then I also would suggest that we try to avoid the discussion on utility or futility of uh, making lossy uh, conversions. I mean, we, we all know about it. And, and let's assume we, we know sometimes it's going to be lossy and we are fully aware and document that lossiness and uh, try to focus on how we could effectively do a conversion uh, so that we can bring ontological engineering closer to today's uh, practicing uh, user communities of like system architects, analysts, developers uh, who may not even have heard of the O word but are doing a lot with uh, systems and data models. Okay. So, thanks, so. thanks, Peter. Adam. Yeah. So um, I would I'd also agree with Mark about the importance of idioms. I mean, it's true in programming languages, and it's certainly true in knowledge representation. Um, and and as Peter says, we all know that translation is going to be lossy and uh, painful and difficult, and we somehow have to make the best of it. Okay. M Monica. I'm just a listener in some of this. I, 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 uh, I'll pass. You always say that. Well, um, some of the things you guys are talking about, I'm just learning about. So uh, I recognize my limitation, at least at this point. <laughs> okay. Uh, for myself, I'll say that I'm, I'm poised to jump uh, violently, depending on how strong Adam makes the statement that XML is only syntax. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Pat? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I, I'd certainly like to uh, agree with Mark that um, representation is important. The, uh, I've, I've always said over and over again that ease of understanding and ease of use uh, are critical if you want a standard ontology. Of course, the building your own doesn't matter. Anybody who builds their own understands their own. But if you want somebody else to understand it, it's really important to make it easy to use. Uh, on the other hand, I, I totally disagree with Peter, and uh, I think also with Adam, in that um, uh, the whole point of the um, note I wrote was precisely that conversion does not have to be lossy, that you can have the same information. But uh, you can, if you distinguish between the static knowledge representation, the static recording of knowledge, and the programs that use it. Right. I think the whole, the whole um, confusion about lossy... Um, conversions from one format to another uh, arose because uh, in, in the long history of description logic, the, uh, the whole point of that exercise was to conflate the representation of knowledge and 
the logical reasoning system that uses it. Uh, and, and that's completely unnecessary. So uh, the point I was making is that if you have axioms, there's no reason in the world why you just can't take your axioms and put it into a class in Protege or in OWL called axiom. Uh, and and the, um, each axiom is a string. And that string in Protege or OWL will look exactly like the string in a KIF file. No difference whatsoever. It's there to be used. Now, uh, we know okay, description logics... Can you logics, wrap this up for us, please? Okay, so the point is we know description logics can't use it. But the point is that the information can be recorded um, and, and moved back and forth between formats so that anybody who wants to restrict themselves to description logic can. And even if you have an OWL file, if you decide that you have a program that can use uh, axioms, you can then take the axioms out and use them. So it, the important thing is distinguish between the static knowledge representation and the program that uses it. Okay. Okay, Pat, I have a question for you. How are you going to prefer that I cut you off in this conversation? Uh, do, you have, do you have a preference there? Uh, shout. I will shout. Okay, thank you. Uh, Peter. Peter Dennis. Well, now I'm I'm kind of wondering about what Pat just said about lossy, and I, I kind of side with um, Peter Yim on this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, to some degree, I, I think we have to ask ourselves what it means to represent something, and when we talk about um, what the tool what the tools are capable of um, relative to that representation, I think I think there's some some issue of lossiness there that needs to be investigated a little more. That's about all I have. Okay, interesting point. Uh, Chris? Uh, I'm, I'm uh, in, in partial agreement with, with Patrick, I think, um, that uh, it, 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 it's clear that we do need to, uh, uh, we have to have very clear uh, uh, representation languages with clear semantics. Uh, also, ax we have to know that axiomatizations are complete. So it won't do if we've just got a single axiom for a class, say, um, uh, and expect that to, to uh, convey information. There has to be a whole underlying set of axioms for classes, and, and uh, there has to be agreement on what axiom, uh, what theories of classes, for example, one is going to take um, for uh, representing one's information. So there are, there are possibilities of lossiness, even in very expressive uh, frameworks, if people are uh, using uh, underlying theories which don't completely agree in their in their axioms um, and that's still something that's still an, a, a difficult issue to settle because a lot of people uh, want uh, or have preferences for one uh, theory uh, over another over another but in principle I agree if, if we can fix uh, if we can fix the overarching representation framework and all the axioms and all the theories, there's no need for lossiness. But the, the, the question is whether it's, it's possible or practical to do that. Okay. Um, I heard a beep. Did anybody else join the conversation? Yeah, this is David Witten. I came a bit slow, so it's hard to have a strong opinion. Okay. I haven't heard most of the discussion. Um, one of the things that, uh, speaking of the idea that you can read something in from KIF and add it to a particular area that you call the axioms. Uh, you still would be nice to have some way of being able to check for, I don't know, well-foundedness or something like that in the text strings that are there. Um, 
you know, the general idea about transferring from one place to the other is if you have ways of testing syntactically at least what's going on, you've got a better chance of being able to import it into the next place because at least they have a chance of, of understanding that what they got coming in is good syntax as opposed to just an arbitrary character, string of characters. Right. You know, um, and I think that in terms of communications and transferring data between different systems, having some kind of way of getting that kind of guarantee or that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of knowledge makes your task a whole lot different task than if it's just let's arbitrarily load these strings that may be written in English, they may be written in GIF, they may be written in SciCal. I'm not sure what they're written in, but you're going to have to handle it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That makes the import task far more complex than if you have ways to even do even parentheses counting. Okay. You Can I make a comment at this point? Sure. Yes, who is uh, that? Yeah, yeah yes, the, 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 uh, that, the, that, that's absolutely correct. It's good to, to know that you're syntactically correct, and that is fact. And the program I wrote to convert um, uh, SKIF to Protege, I did precisely that. I, I, I made, well, not, I didn't do every bit of possible checking, but I made sure that, that you had uh, not, only, uh, not only checked to see that you had what looked, you know, proper uh, parenthesis bracketing, and uh, I made sure that the first elements of each parenthesis, of each uh, assertion, if you will, uh, was a valid, um, um, uh, prep, you know, a valid uh, relation in the ontology, in the ontology base, and I made sure that the uh, number of um, arguments conformed to the uh, argument uh, arity of the relationship. You can do that, sure, but that, that's a function of the conversion program. So uh, the point I was making is that you can convert, but of course you need a conversion program. And what I'm saying is it's, it's perfectly feasible, and, and, and somebody as, as minimally uh, proficient as I am at writing a program can do it very easily <laughs> to, to write a program to convert back and forth. Uh, the only thing that you need is some agreement on where in each representation the problematical uh, elements will reside. Where will the axioms be in Protege or in, uh, in OWL? And, and where will the hierarchy relationships be? Once you know that, um, then anybody can write a program to convert them back and forth correctly. Okay. So I, I think what I want to focus on now is, is really one of the core themes that came through here in the idea of what is representation. And the area I'm not sure there's consensus yet or an emerging consensus is, uh, does representation have to have with it um, a processing system that will provide, understand, provide, and act upon the essential semantics. Are those things closely coupled or loosely coupled? Yeah, I think there's a, this is Adam, I think there's a little confusion. I mean, there's maybe, maybe there's really actually three issues here. So there, there is representation in some syntax. There is operations you can do on stuff that is represented in a particular syntax, and that's, that's what I think you're just addressing, Kurt. But then there's also semantics or the definition of what things actually mean independent of any particular implementation that takes advantage of those semantics to do a particular sort of processing. And while an implementation isn't necessary to say that you've represented something or translated something, uh, a semantics is. 
And so otherwise, you know, we're left with, okay, my language is, is ASCII or bits, and therefore I've represented everything. You know, just putting the contents of one language into a uh, semantically uh, totally uninformed comment string in another language does not mean you've actually translated anything. You've merely moved the comment string over, and you'll still ultimately have the problem of then translating that common, uh, comment string out to whatever your other target language might be uh, before you can actually do anything useful with it other than you know display it in a text editor. Can I hit so, a point so let's keep these three issues separate. There's, there's implementation, there's syntax, and there's semantics. Okay, can I comment again? Go for it. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the, um, the theory which I'm advancing is that there is no such thing as meaning without interpretation. Um, you can, somebody can write down something and claim it has meaning, okay? And it may, in fact, have meaning to the person who created it. It has no meaning to anybody else in the world unless there is some mechanism for interpretation. Now, the mechanism may be a person reading it, or it may be a computer program using it. And so the, the meaning of any representation is, is absolutely dependent upon the program or human process that interprets it. Um, and, and so when, when Adam says uh, he keeps uh, repeating over and over again the, no, the notion um, a character string, character string, character string, uh, Anything you put into an ontology can have errors, okay? Everything you put into an ontology is a character string, and it can have errors. Uh, therefore, according to Adam's interpretation, anything that you put in can have arbitrary meaning. But the fact is it's not true. You do checking on them, okay? When you put something into protege, it, it, it checks to see if it already exists, for example, um, and if there's any name clashes, or if the name is a valid character string. Uh, if you take a conversion program, you take an axiom that sits in a, a, a KIF file, and you import it into the axiom class of protege, you can do the checking there. If you don't do the checking, there may be errors. If you do the checking, you reduce the chance that there's errors. And the same is true no matter what knowledge you put in. So to call it a, a character string is absolutely uh, misleading. It, it's not just any old character string. The requirement is to be a valid axiom, it has to have certain characteristics. Now, you may or may not check to see if it's valid. But the requirement is, in this representation, to be a valid axiom, to be a valid element of that class, it must have certain characteristics. It cannot be any arbitrary character string. This is Mark. Uh, let me amplify what you said. I think probably the best place where this, this, this issue was described uh, was in the paper that Alan Newell wrote 25 years ago uh, entitled The Knowledge Level. This was the original presidential address of AAAI. And one of the things that she made very, very clear in that paper, which uh, is not controversial now but was controversial then, was the idea of representation having no semantics unless there's a process that gets applied to it. And I think it's what we've all been saying, that there is either some computational process which gets applied to a representation, or there's some mental process that gets applied to a representation. But without either of those things, one just has a set of symbols that have no intrinsic uh, semantics whatsoever. And I think that's, that, that's what I, I'm, we're, I think we're all agreeing on. Uh, the other thing which is, uh, I, I guess, a, a, us a useful reference is 
um, I'm guessing 1992 or so, there was a really wonderful paper in the AI magazine uh, that Randy Davis, Howie Schrobe, and Peter Solovich wrote entitled, What is a Knowledge Representation? And uh, I don't have that paper in front of me right now, but one of the things that they did was to look at what people mean by knowledge representation and the fact that people mean different things that a knowledge representation uh, is a surrogate for human cognition. It's a uh, computer program. It's instead of ontological commitments. It, it, it basically, looking at KR and saying, depending on what your perspective is, you think of, of a knowledge representation in different ways. And part of the problem, again, in the AI community is that we take it for granted that when we say KR, we all mean the same thing. And I think the, the Davis paper was really nice in pointing out that that's not the case. <coughs> Anybody disagree with any of this? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> not not uh, uh, may I ask Mark to either email uh, me the, the, the details of the paper, the links to the paper, or uh, post make a post uh, either on the wiki or on the forum so that uh, we can, uh, I mean, people who are interested could follow up on this. I, for one, would be. Uh, secondly, uh, I, I said I disagree not with what people are saying, but I disagree with the direction we are going. That's exactly what I did on the opening statement. I hope we are avoiding this conversation and actually get down to and, and, and sort of recognize the validity of the exercise that even if this is lossy or not loss or lossless, uh, we want to do this so that more uh, computer professionals and practitioners can use semantic technologies and ontological engineering and, and in, in so doing bring this into the mainstream. So, so could we sort of avoid uh, going down that path and say, I mean, uh, what, what does it take to convert and what are the uh, caveats that we have to properly document so that we don't mis mislead people? Can we do that? We'll probably get to it. All right. Um, I, I, I want to go back, though, and clarify, because I think we need to pin this one down, because this is what we get wrapped around the axle on. I think we're close to, to either understanding the point of consensus or the point of divergence. And, and Adam, and I think I'm, I may have miswritten this, because I'm just taking some quick notes, but when you said three parts, that semantics, the note I wrote was independent of application. And what I'm hearing from Pat and Mark is there are no semantics independent of application. So it sounds like it deserves some clarification or some expansion. Adam, Hello? Adam, you still with us? Um, this is Chris. I, I, I'll try to answer a bit for Adam. Um, I guess where Adam is, uh, the perspective Adam's adopting here, I think, is just a standard one uh, from logic which is that you've got languages and, and uh, there are structures then uh, that are completely independent of languages and then uh, semantics is a matter of connecting languages to these structures, uh, some of which when they're the, when they have the right sort of features we think of, a, of as the intended structures. So when we write axioms for 
number structure to be the intended structure, the intended semantical structure for that language. Similarly, if we're writing axioms for uh, for uh, processes, we would uh, we, we make certain commitments about the structure of processes. For example, that uh, that they're composed of discrete uh, events that occupy some interval of time and include certain sets of objects standing in relations to one another or having certain properties and so on. Now, all of that stuff, that the structural stuff, is either, if we think of them just as abstract mathematical objects uh, or as real structures out in the world, are independent of uh, you know, from this traditional logical perspective, are independent of any given language, and mm -hmm. so and semantics is a matter of hooking them, hooking them up. And so, even if you have a procedure, a process, a program that's doing that, the intention is that it's somehow reflecting this uh, connection, assumed perhaps implicit connection between a given representation language and uh, a given structure or a given piece of the world. I, I think I can uh, I, I think I agree with that and I, I would say that we make some some assumptions about uh, the behavior of the recipient as a machine okay and in particular we're talking um, in any kind of directed communication uh, the representation is designed for the purpose of eliciting a particular behavior out of the recipient and therefore, that relationship between the representation and uh, the machine, the, the, the recipient, is, is I mean, that's where the semantics is. Well, that, I, I think then, then, then perhaps we, we need to uh, uh, finer grain terminology because that, that's not what semantics means on this traditional paradigm and in, and in the, uh, which, which is embraced by a large segment of the of the KR uh, community. So there's an important thing there, no question, and I, I'm not denying that at all. But if we call that semantics, then we're no. just flat and, uh, equivocating on the term. I, okay, I, but don't, I don't care whether we call it semantics or not, but I think... Neither do I. It's just a point. There's two things there. There's this connection between languages and the world, or languages and these structures, and there's this uh, issue of... of uh, what an agent or a program does with certain input uh, from a representation language. And those are two completely different things. They're connected, of course, but they're, they're very different. Okay, can I and that's all I've been saying, and I think uh, Chris communicated that maybe a little better than I can. I mean, this, I, I, I'm surprised that this is at all controversial. It's simply a fact that, that, that there are uh, ways of defining meaning for symbols that's independent of a particular computational or a mental process for processing them, just in the same way that we can define a semantics for mathematics. You know, we don't have to have a program that computes 2 plus 2 equals 4 to actually have a formal semantics for that. Okay, uh, this is the, cr the crux of the issue, and, and uh, I, I hope we can have a few minutes to discuss it further. But let me uh, let me ask you this question, uh, Chris. Uh, you, you, you're talking about the formal definition of semantics in, in, in mathematics. As I understand it, it's, it's basically a mapping between certain uh, structures and certain certain mathematical structures and certain other mathematical structures. Okay. Well, between languages and, and structures. Yes. Okay, but again, it's a mapping. And that is to say, 
you, you can have all these symbols on a piece of paper, and the only way you can decide whether there is any correspondence whatsoever between one set of symbols and some other set of symbols is to execute a process that, de that by some agreed-upon procedure, determines I, this. I, I agree with that, Patrick. But notice you put the word decide in there. So you've now immediately moved to a very different issue, which has to do with uh, procedures for, for determining one thing or another. That's, that's important, of course, critical, in fact. But it's different from just simply the meaning of the notion of semantics, which is this connection between languages and, as you say, mappings between languages and structures, or languages and the world. That's, that's what, in this paradigm, this logical paradigm, that's what semantics is. Now, there's, there's this huge raft of other issues that I think you're, you're, you're spot on about having to do with determining what meaning is. What is the meaning of this term? What is, you know, when we're given a representation language or a sentence in a representation language, what is the meaning of the, the name? What are the meanings of the names? What are the meanings of the predicates? That's all really important stuff that has to be addressed. It's just a different issue. So I don't think there's a, I really don't think there's room for a, 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 a debate here other than just simply recognizing we've got two very different, very important elements of KR uh, that, that we have to distinguish and properly connect. And I, I think that I'd like to jump in here for a second and add that where I hear the discussion maybe go in an area where I don't quite, dis don't quite agree with is the idea this interpretation requires a software agent. It may be a human agent that does the interpretation. No, wait, we agreed on that to begin with. Except that on occasion, well, I, 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 on occasion I hear the thing is, you know, you don't have to have a piece of software to have semantics. So and you have to have a process, whether it's human or, or, or software. It's some interpreting process, some interpreting agent. Right. Okay. But that, that's, that's what's denied in the logic. In this in this logic paradigm, it's, How, it's why is it denied? Denied as, that, that that is required to have semantics. Well, okay. In in, in my in, in, in my interpretation, the it's it's the the mapping itself is the process. Okay. Uh, well, now this may not be the uh, so use some other term for it. Okay. Then if, we, if 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 process is 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 has has too many connotations that perhaps are misleading in this context. Uh, let's well, invent invent, it, it, invent a different term, but you have to have something external to the static symbols themselves that decides that is doing the interpreting right right that is doing the interpreting yeah or that's that that is either establishing an interpretation or recognizing some antecedent right okay uh, then that's but, but notice but notice to establish the thing established or the thing recognized that thing is 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 just the connection proper, which has nothing to do with uh, an agent or a program actually recognizing it. Well, okay, but, but the, thing, the, thing I'm, the thing I'm looking so at is you have, you, have, you have a set of symbols and you have a set of interpretations. And, and, and the question is you want to connect somehow. Here, yes. You have these symbols and there's, there's now, right now, this minute, there's no connection. Now, at some point, you want to find a connection between some symbol and some interpretation. That whatever you call it, whether you call it a hang process on, on. or a mapping or whatever it is, something has to happen, time-dependent something, that creates a connection that did not previously exist, and now you have an interpretation. Something's created, and and um, and and it, a person can do it, 
or a machine can do it, but a piece of paper sitting there by itself or a computer disk with, with uh, spots or electronic uh, sure. arrangements, it can't do it. You have to have something external to the representation, to the static representation that creates this connection. Okay, I, I'm, I have really no objection to that uh, at all, but we just want to make sure we distinguish between the connection established and the establishing of the connection. Right. right? And it's the, the establishing the connection, connection established is just, we can think of as just as, once it's established, it's just there. Okay, it's then, just then the it, once it's established, it's, an, it's, 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 an, it's another static piece of knowledge, <laughs> right. in, in my interpretation. Okay. The other thing uh, that I would want to comment is on is the word lossy. Um, this has been mentioned on, on a number of occasions, and I think this is also central to the question that we're dealing with. Um, in, in the typical, the more common um, notion of lossy, you can take, for example, JPEG compression. And you'll take a, uh, an original image and you'll compress it by JPEG. And once you've done that, there is no possibility at all of ever, by, by a, a, a fixed process, by a defined process, recovering the original image. That is truly lossy. You have lost information. It's not there anymore in the compressed image. This is what lossy means. Now, what I'm saying is that if you take a, a, a TIFF file in ASCII format and you move it into a representation in Protégé or in OWL, uh, and if you move the axioms and everything that's in the, or the knowledge, and it's there in such a way that you now have a process or program that can move back all the knowledge that's there in the OWL or the Protégé or whatever, and move it back to get you the same original file right back where you started from, you cannot call this lossy. That's a good point. Okay, so that, those are two points for me. Uh, there, there is a, a sense in which the analogy still holds, though, and that's that if, if in fact, uh, there, the, the, rep, the, the power, the expressive power of the language that you're um, uh, moving information into is simply less than the expressive power of the source language, then as long as that expressive power is lacking, You've lost information and right. can't get it back. In, 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 the, in that environment where you're using, where you're using the uh, deductive process, which, which does not recognize uh, the more expressive um, yeah. interpretations, in that environment, you, you're definitely lost stuff. You know, okay. And, and kind, of, kind of the term that comes to mind for this isn't so much lossiness, but, but um, actionability. You may, move, you, you may move all of this information into a form where it hasn't gone away, but it's lost its ability to be acted upon based upon the agents that rely on that language. That's a good point, though. Though that it may also be that information is actually lost. Oh, I agree. It may also be that it's not, as you say, actionable. So that's a nice distinction. Oh yeah, yeah. You you, you, cer you certainly can have a translation program which which ignores some of the information and doesn't and doesn't store it properly. Or for that matter, if you're if you're back conversion program doesn't convert properly. If if there's if there's some kind of um, error in the translation from one to the other, then again, you, you, you would be lossy. But my, my, my assertion was that you can write programs that will move the information from one format to another and move it back. And, and, and if you have done that, which I haven't done myself, I, I wrote a program to move information in one direction but not in the reverse direction, but I'm convinced it can be done. But, but if, if you don't have the, the interconversion, the accurate interconversion program, then, of course, you will have some losses. And, and I think that the problem is, of course, that when people in up, 
traditionally have thought of, of um, not not going one direction and the other. They thought only of going in one direction. And then, of course, it's, it's quite correct to saying you're losing it. It's saying, I'm going to take a GIF file, and I'm going to move it into OWL, and I'm going to reason with the OWL reasoner. Yes, yes, you have lost information. That's true. But my, my point, and, and the reason I'm making this point is this, that we have communities that want to use OWL, and, and they're growing. Uh, and, and although I, I, I really wish they had fixed in a different language, the yeah. fact is they have fixed on OWL. <laughs> and there are communities that need KIF, need the expressiveness of KIF or some other first-order language, which includes myself. And, and what, I'm, what I'm hoping is that somehow the two communities can intercommunicate. And I think the point is I think they, it can be done if we agree on where in OWL or Protege the, the expressive um, logical structures that are not native to that language. Where can you put those and agree on where to put them? Then we can devise translation programs that will move back and forth. Okay, I heard a period there, Pat. Thank you. Okay. You did. I did. Let me um, add just a quick, point out a quick resource here. No. Um, just that, well, first of all, OWL, there is OWL full, which is supposed to be full for sort of expressive. But aside from that, um, some of the work in, in uh, uh, Pat Hayes has sort of been the prima mobile here lately, but on, on the Common Logic project um, is, ex is explicitly about integrating uh, uh, KIF and KIF-like languages and uh, OWL and other uh, more semantically web-oriented languages. And uh, some recent documents have been put up on the, on the Common Logic website, which is uh, cl.tamu, Texas A&M University, .edu. Thank you. Thank you. Um, at this point, is anybody hearing anything that they're reacting very strongly to? No, but I have a comment. Please. Um, one thing that struck true, and I have to get down to the down to what I see going on in the real world and some of the things you guys are talking about, especially when you're talking about inference. I'll give you a prime example, and if it doesn't fit, you can scream at me and tell me I'm at a period like you just did. Somebody <laughs> else. But um, many over a, uh, when when the work was ongoing before they got to core components, uh, the the version that went to ISO, there were long conversations with uh, ANSI ASCII X12 that had to do with you know their EDI formats and even to some extent an artifact about the fact that you have these. Um, I want to call them abstract entities, these business information entities, and they got into a lot of discussion about if I define a core component that goes into to harmonization and it gets changed, is it still a core component? And I and and there were these were people that have been in the EDI world for a very long time and had been involved with core components for since the beginning. And and my comment to them was is my core component could be your business information entity, i.e. it doesn't have all context of meaning, it has my context of meaning. And what that raises to me is that inference, I, I, I understand there's mathematical work, and you guys are very well educated in that arena, that, that uh, helps you uh, work on that aspect, but I still think in, in humans we always apply some type of context, regardless if we think we do or don't. And, and I think that example primarily brings it out. How you actually affect to certainty in a, in, a, in a program, I don't know, because still there's humans putting, evaluating what the baseline of the inference is. And, and I 
component is your BIE. And, and I'm not saying the, it, it doesn't invalidate the work that's going on. It just highlights the fact that I'm not sure if we ever get to certainty. Hmm. And that's my comment. There's my period. Okay. Whether I'm right or wrong, I'm not asking. You know, it's just a, it's just a comment. Well, you, you actually, I think, raise or, or lead to the topic that I wanted to, to move us to next. And that is kind of going back to one of Mark's original statements of, is this understandable to humans in the system? And what I'm sensing is that one important aspect of lossiness is what part of this logical model, if that's not a totally inappropriate use of that phrase, is formalized, expressed, and communicated to the humans involved, and what part of it is lost in the representation and, and has to be supplied by, you know, something, somewhere, some understanding or some processor or some agent. Or, uh, software agent somewhere. So, you know, uh, I guess the question I'm asking is, from this perspective, um, which semantic aspect, which semantic properties, or what aspects of semantics are really required for the human to be able to understand this stuff? What this gets into, um, and this uh, is, is a discussion, and this is another real-world example with Rosetta Net. They they have done an amazing amount of work uh, for the RosettaNet Technical Dictionary, and they've tried to integrate, you know, a, a model of what they would say that business and technical content could be housed in, you know, or at least have the representation for. And they had a long discussion about uh, what is the common, what is the most minimum baseline of information, and when I say information, I mean it very generically, that has to be understood. And um, it's almost like it was a it was a baseline of information. This is just this big blob that has a functional identifier, and it gets back to somebody understanding it. And no one could ever agree what the minimum baseline was. All they could do is say, we 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 allow an agreement to specify that baseline. Um, I know I'm leading you down a different path, but what I'm saying is, is no one could agree what the minimum baseline was. Okay. Uh, anybody have any thoughts on that? Hope, I'm sorry. I may maybe have gotten off topic. <laughs> well, uh, as far as understandability goes, no, I, again, uh, I think I'd, we started off with that, and, and, and I agree it's a terribly important thing. Um, and uh, of, of the systems I've seen so far, um, none are you know, inherently understandable except those that attempt to um, use a controlled English. And the systems I've seen that attempt to use a controlled English are primarily logical inferencing systems that say they're not directly integrated with an ontology. And I think it's probably possible to get a controlled English-like system that um, references directly a particular ontology, and, and that might be more understandable than, than certain other systems. Mm -hmm. um, may, may I ask a question to that? Mm -hmm. Is um, when you say controlled English, um, and, and, in the, and, and that uh, I, I saw a report the other day that was talking about uh, what we understand as, as English in terms, and, and whether or not we're using them appropriately, um, which gets back to a human being making that assessment. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the term was, what is correct English? We may use terms and understand them, but we're not using them properly. And I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying 
I can understand why maybe yeah, what you said it applies. Yeah, natural languages are very flexible and they change pretty quickly over time. So yeah. um, when you say controlled English, you're saying not only um, is the syntax restricted, it doesn't have all the syntactical structures of an ordinary natural language, but not only that, but every term that you use also is um, unambiguous and unique in the same sense that a term in ontology would be unambiguous and unique. Uh, unless, if you have a controlled English system that can disambiguate, that, that, okay, then, then you may allow certain terms to have more than one, uh, more than one meaning at the beginning and then after the interpretation, it's disambiguated. Uh, but but even even in such cases, um, you you would uh, have to have a very severe restriction on on both the syntax and and the vocabulary in, in order to be able to unambiguously interpret at the current state of the technology. Okay. So yeah, natural language won't work. <laughs> okay. So I'm I'm hearing a period from Pat. Uh, let's see. I'm I'm also hearing somebody breathing into their uh, mouthpiece. And it's, not, it's not me, but but I have I have a uh, suggestion. I know the Stanford contingent uh, has to leave uh, fairly soon. So oh, yeah, but we have a meeting at noon. Right. So so could we move into the I mean things that are directly related to protege? And I mean, I, I know in our this the technical discussion there is actually a session that is uh, uh, that has been earmarked for sumo and and, and uh, Kif, a protege Kif, and a lot of these we could address at, uh, during that session. Could we go down to at least practical uh, applications in the conversion here, especially when we have Ray and Olivier with us who could actually answer questions? So why don't we go ahead and, and um, let's start with, uh, I'll start with Ray for the fun of it. Yeah, Ray, uh, what's your reaction and, and kind of what do you see as the implications of this on getting stuff into Protégé and getting stuff out of Protégé? Okay. Um, we've, we've dealt with these issues before um, in, in, in the past. Um, and, uh, and we've basically uh, uh, tried most of the approaches that have been discussed here uh, in, at various times, um, basically because of, of uh, associated needs. Um, one, one particularly good place to look at this, which is still surviving, um, is, is in our RDF backend, um, where there are things that you can model in Protege directly, which are not directly representable in RDF. Um, so, the, so the issue came up of, of what do we do with this stuff? Um, should we prevent someone from, from modeling, uh, from using those sort of Protege features that are not uh, representable in RDF? Um, or should we allow someone to use them and throw them away when we write it into RDF? Or should we um, encode them in RDF in some format in which uh, a processor that only understands RDF wouldn't know what to do with it, but which we could um, extract it um, again later? And, and I, I think sort of at the, at the implementation level, those are the, those are the sorts of issues that you've been grappling with. Um, and so, and so, what we have, whenever you right now, whenever you uh, write out in um, in Protege and RDF, you have you have a little a checkbox. Basically, you tell the system what to do. Either it can throw the information away, uh, make it lossy, um, and the, with the result that you have a very clean RDF file that uh, everything that's in that file means exactly what the RDF spec says it means, and there's n there's no sort of additional semantics or fuzzy semantics or 
or strings or whatever floating around that are trying to convey semantics that are not in the file. But, but nonetheless, important information that the user felt was important to model it has, has been thrown away. Um, or you could not check that box, in which case we, we generate additional information in RDF in which some other processor, um, either Protege itself or something else that understood um, the, the semantics might make use of. Um, and people both check that box and do not check that box based on exactly on, on what, they, what, they, what they intend to do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a, lo a long way around, but I, I, I think it's all, um, uh, it, it all, it all is fairly relevant. Um, so, um, and, and in the end, so you end up with extra instances floating around in the RDF file that then Protege knows how to deal with, um, but nothing else, and they, they, con they convey additional information about the model um, that another RDF processor would not know how to deal with. And um, to finish up, so that, that RDF model with the additional information can be read in and written out by a sort of arbitrary number of intermediate intermediaries without understanding the additional uh, information and without corrupting it at all. Um, so long as none of those intermediaries actually edit the file, so long as none of them change it, if it's just being transferred along, once somebody changes the file, then the fact that you have additional semantics, semantic information that's encoded um, that that processor does not understand, once it changes it, um, all bets are off on whether the semantics uh, actually, uh, or whether the additional information still makes sense or not. So that point had not come up in this conversation. I, I think it's worth, worth yeah, it's, it. a, it's a valid point. You're quite correct. Um, so, so we've done it um, both both ways um, because people want sort of both sorts of things. So, in uh, and and all, all of those points are, are also relevant for Al. The back end at the moment takes a completely different approach and doesn't allow you. So, the Al plugin does not allow you to model things which cannot be directly represented in Al. Um, and so, whenever you write out the Al. Um, so essentially, the UI has been changed um, so that whenever you write out the L, whatever you get is uh, is directly representable in the language. So, but uh, so um, if you want to, um, so so that that's the approach that the L plugin has taken. Um, there's uh, we, and we haven't dealt with the issue of what of uh, how to. Uh, encode information in, say, additional OWL instances, which could certainly be done with uh, in OWL in the, in the same way that's done with the RDF backend. A code information as additional instances or annotations or some other mechanism and carry them along um, as as needed, perhaps to be reconstructed by some other program at, at some later date. So, I, did I answer all the question that was asked of me, or maybe I've just want uh, aimlessly rambled and maybe some <laughs> ask a more specific question. I, I, I thought that was actually an excellent response to a, a ambiguous question. May I have a comment in here, Pat? Okay. Okay. Uh, I guess I, I, I agree with that, Ray. The, the question of what happens after you've done a conversion, say, from Kiffin to Protege, and then you start modifying the Protege file. Of course, if you, uh, say, for example, delete a um, uh, uh, relationship that is used in one of the axioms, um, the protege won't know that. It won't know enough to uh, to check that and warn you. And and, and therefore, in this case, what I had envisioned was that uh, if you're going to do that sort of modification, then you'll probably have to run subsequently some kind of validation process. 
I, I, I envisioned that as, as, as a plug-in to Protege. It would, it would be periodically you can validate and check the, again the problematical structures such as axioms and higher level, um, uh, higher order relationships. Uh, you, you could rerun your checks to see if anything has happened to to um, make the file inconsistent. Okay, Ray, Ray had a follow-up question for you. Um, when you look at these RDF and OWL uh, subsets. What type of information is getting stripped out? Is there kind of an easy way of characterizing that? Um, well, I, I'm, I, I could tell you with the RDF backend, for example, um, RDF doesn't have a way to limit the cardinality of a property. Um, so, um, so essentially everything is cardinality multiple. But whenever people do modeling in Protege, so one possibility is that we would modify the Protege UI so that it didn't allow you to specify cardinality single, and you, we would always acquire, uh, allow people to acquire more than one value for a given property. Um, we decided not to do that, um, although the, the representation may uh, not allow you to specify more than one property. It's, it's more than one value for a property. It's a very common thing for people to want to do. So in that particular example, uh, we thought that we really didn't want to uh, to specify cardinality single. They just wouldn't do it. They would make all of their properties cardinality multiple, and then we wouldn't have to generate anything extra. Right. Um, so it was essentially left in as an additional feature that is a very common thing to, to want. Um, the, there are a few other things. So, so uh, that's one thing in RDF. The other is you cannot change the um, essentially the range of a property at a class. Uh, you, you cannot place additional restrictions. When you say this property uh, uh, at this class has a re more restricted range, that's a very common thing to do in Protege. Um, it cannot be done in RDF. Um, there's a separate mechanism which provides somewhat similar capabilities, uh, which also exists in OWL, uh, sub-slotting. Um, well, that, that gives me a feel for it. Um, th those are the sorts of things that that uh, get mangled. The right. sort of stuff of what's a class and what's a slot are, this, are match up or it wouldn't make any sense at all to store an RDF to begin with. Right. Uh, Olivia, do you have anything you'd like to add at this point? Mm, nothing specific to add. There's also the option in Protege Owl that you can either choose the checkbox and make your ontology either Owlful or RDL. And then, if you go from output to LDL, everything that is out of the scope of LDL just gets erased and completely lost once again. Okay. And I think, Mark, how about anything you want before you guys have to drop off? I think we've covered the, the terrain pretty well. Uh, may I ask a few questions? Uh, specific to the type of uh, outputs that we were hoping we could translate to, uh, could, could you talk a little bit to it? I mean, we've uh, covered, I mean, at least to a certain extent, OWL and RDF. What are the, I mean, the status of plugins or tools that would allow, let's say, uh, outputs into XML or XSDs, uh, UML class diagrams, uh, uh, OCL, uh, relational database schemas, and so on. Uh, how 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 much of those are being used, and and uh, I mean, are they effective? Uh, a 
Okay, I can I can address some of those. Um, the uh, XML in particular and and XSD, um, we we do have uh, existing export capabilities um, there. People do use them. Uh, there are a few problems, but not too serious. Um, and those we would actually like to to provide. Uh, they're uh, not terribly well supported, and we would like to sort of make uh, make that sort of part of the main system, um, so that it's not uh, as a separate thing. Um, that that hasn't happened yet. I would expect that that would happen um, before 3.1 is released, before the project conference this year in July. Um, so that's the situation with with um, XML and XSD. Um, or XML schema. Um, RDF has support in a variety of ways, um, and people do use it, and and uh, I, I think that's that's pretty well covered. Um, OWL also, obviously, uh, we're more or less the de facto OWL editor, um, so we we can certainly export into OWL into OWL with no problem. Um, for let's see, uh, the UML support used to work with. For Protege, I believe that it's broken at the moment, but I'm not exactly sure. It is broken. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what it would take to make that work. Money. Well, money. Money. Yeah, yeah, money. yeah, money would definitely help <laughs> on these things that don't work. Money, um, everything that you've mentioned is sort of of interest to us. It's just a matter of, um, of uh, getting support to get it done. So I don't think it would take much to get the UML working again, given that it used to work. Actually, um, if I can chime in, I think the current version of the UML plugin complies to an old version of the UML language. Yeah, 1.3, I think, versus 2.0. Um, so OCL, I don't know that we have any support directly for, for translating into OCL. Um, one could easily imagine some, Proje has a sort of a native constraint language called PAL, and one could easily imagine translating back and forth between that and, and OCL, but um, that, that has not been done. Um, is there some, is that a direction, or are you moving out of the native uh, protege uh, representations and focusing on OWL? Uh, we, we're continuing, we're certainly not doing any additional work on the, on the protege representation. Um, many people do use it. Um, People are also using increasingly other scripting languages and other rule-based systems that are integrated into Project Jess and, and a variety of uh, Algernon. Uh, in the OWL world, there's Swirl, um, which right now there's no engine. It's just a language, but one day, presumably, there'll be an engine. Um, so th um, that's sort of uh, what's what's happening there. Um, I, I, again, we don't ha we don't have ongoing support for for pal at this at this point and I I would be surprised if that picked up it got picked up again in, in a serious manner um, the system basically works now we haven't broken it. it when we do break it we make it work but there's not a lot of ongoing effort in that direction um, the most serious glaring hole in the system so we can write protege um, knowledge bases into a relational database but we don't generate a schema that anyone would actually want to use in external programs. The, the idea is that we can store up the information that we need in a relational database um, so that we don't have to load it all in for the same reasons that anyone uses a relational database. But the application that seemed to be using that, that 
database's protege and not some other application. So for example, if you have a class called foo, we don't generate a table called foo. In fact, the, the table in the database has columns in it called frames and slots and stuff like that. It's protege. Protege is the application that uses the database. Um, one could easily imagine, and many people have, ima have imagined and would like to use, um, a system that did generate tables for classes and rows for instances. Um, we, we would like to do this, um, uh, and um, some of our users have done this. A number of them have done it. Um, it hasn't been released to the, none of it's been released to the public. Um, and uh, so, and again, that's the issue there is, is simply money, getting someone to fund this effort or getting someone on the outside to do the effort, which, which could easily be done, and then contributing it um, to the making it open source. Not many of the people who are interested in doing this are companies, and they develop the effort to it, and they're not going to give it away. Um, so that's what's happened in the past. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if did I miss any of the items that you wanted to cover. I, I think that I, I hit all of them that I remember. Uh, yes, that, that, that's great, especially since we've got the, your answers recorded, we can go back and go through. Okay, back to you, Kurt. Uh, forgive me, I was sneezing at that moment. Um, let's see, we've got one minute until the Stanford people leave. So they own the clock. Okay, I'm trying to think if we have anything of great wisdom to say in the next minute. <laughs> I have a question or a comment um, in, in working with Protege. Um, one of the things that, that, that seems to be done quite often is um, embedding the, the, the meta model for uh, whatever language you're, you're using within uh, or embedding, say, Protege uh, meta model into, um, well, I've used the XFD uh, um, export. And uh, I guess the problem with that is that you're not you're not capturing the semantics of say like um, what is a class in um, a model that you may be working with. Yes, th this is this is exactly the issue that I described um, in the database world. Um, with with our database format is um, uh, isn't the format that someone wants to use. Um, we actually there are actually two XS, uh, XML export mechanisms. Um, one of which is sort of protege centric in the same way that our database is protege-centric, where classes and slots and instances are all, are all um, essentially XML instances rather than XML classes. And there's another mechanism for exporting um, where protege classes get turned into XSD classes, for example, or, or uh, XML schema classes. And that's the, that's the mechanism that people would, would want to use. And going forward, we plan on actually supporting both of those. It, it turns out that having the classes as data is, uh, one, it's, um, it's convenient for protege to deal with. It's also very convenient for um, uh, people who are working with XSLT, spread, uh, XSLT style sheets for transforming the data into various representations, for visualizing and do other, doing other things. So um, when, um, and, and I hope it happens very soon, when we have better support for XML uh, built in, we will still have two mechanisms for, for generating uh, and dealing with uh, uh, 
XML schema. One, the sort of protege-centric mechanism where you have a class called class and a class called slot or property or something. And another where the classes that we generate are uh, native uh, for a user. So you have a class called table and you, uh, in protege and then you end up with a class in, in XML schema called table. Okay. That was a period. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, can, can, can I also request, I mean, I, uh, Peter Yim here, I've been capturing notes uh, and, and since a lot of these things are above my head and I'm sure I did not do a good job, I request everyone in the session to uh, go through the notes and if you see something that you didn't say uh, that's on, uh, attributed to you, please elaborate and amend and, and, and clean that up. Uh, after the, after the session, uh, we we've just upgraded the the wiki. So uh, unlike before, you would need to create an account and uh, to log in before uh, editing is allowed. I I suggest people use their uh, wiki word format uh, name as the username and then put in even a very simple uh, password so that you don't get spoofed. So nobody can come in and say he is Mark Musen and start saying crazy things. Kurt. Okay. Well, I think I have, the question I have for the group is we are at 12 o'clock, which was, I believe, the nominal ending time for this phone call. Um, how many folks are interested in continuing? How many folks are going to need to drop off at this point? Stanford has to drop off now, in fact. So we will say goodbye to you all. Okay. And we thank you very, very, very much. Oh, mutually. Okay. Bye. Uh, bye bye. Chris I, I have to go meet a student, so uh, I'll be signing off as well. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for being So it sounds like we still have a pretty healthy group here. All right. Uh, Peter Yim is still around. Kurt. Who else? Jim's still here. Oh, Pat's still here. I have a couple minutes. <coughs> Adam's still here. Peter Denno. <coughs> Monica. Okay, so let's, actually, I, what I'm thinking at this point, let's just go another round in, in reactions and comments and thoughts at this point. Um, and I'm looking at the list. Uh, Chris, you're still here? No, Chris dropped out. Chris dropped he, off. He, David, he's are you the still one here? who needs to talk to a student. Oh, okay. David, did you say you're still here? I guess not. So he's gone, he's gone. Peter? Peter Denno. Yes. Um... Pat brought up this issue. He just used the word validation, and I, I, I think we should probably talk about that a little bit more. And um, I mean, Chris was Chris was right on jumping on me about using the word semantics when talking about mapping languages to structures. But in actual translation, um, sometimes just that that tends to be a little too abstract you know those those structures are you know the, essentially the thing being uh, validated and I, I don't get a good sense um, that that's a sufficient notion of validation for practical purposes in some some situations now we've done some work of course with PSL that at times contradicts that but when it comes down to actual translators as as tools, um, 
sometimes that notion of semantics is, is too abstract. We need a notion of meaning. Um, that is, what is entailed by this in terms of an actual uh, translator and, and a tool operating on the translated form. Okay. There? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how I react to that because I'm not sure I understood all of it. Well, I, want, I just want to talk a little more about validation and what it, what it means with respect to translations. Yeah. Well, let me. Uh, this Pat, let me tell you what I what I meant when I when I used the word was basically just just doing some very simple syntactic um, checking of the axioms. When you're importing an axiom, you check to make sure that it's syntactically valid as an yeah. axiom, and and that the uh, the constants, the the symbols within the um, the axiom strings, uh, if if they are not um, variables, uh, then they they correspond to some uh, a constant already in the ontology. That's, you're, not, you're not doing a reasoning on something that doesn't exist. That's the only thing I meant by validation. And um, when, when uh, Ray brought up the question of what happens when you, uh, you do an import into a, a restricted um, language like a protege or owl, and then you start changing in that language what happens to these other structures, that's, that's certainly correct. If you change, if you change something that affects the validity of the constants in an axiom, then then you can invalidate the axiom. So, what I was saying is that you you, you can you can recheck, you know, at some point after you've changed and, and you have uh, an import, an imported program from KIF into OWL, uh, you would want to have a facility for rechecking to make sure that any changes in the file after you've done that didn't invalidate any of the axioms for that reason. Um, well, and, and I think from my perspective, there, there are actually levels of validation that you may want to be able to apply. Yeah, I'm only talking about the very simplest. Yeah, that, so that, that, at, you know, at the low it, level, they're basically sure. syntax validations that the resulting syntax is still... Well, syntax, and again, to make sure the constants are all there. Well, right. yeah, these, these other levels, um, they're kind of familiar, other, familiar to me in other kinds of validation. For example, as an analogy, if you had uh, two, uh, two CAD systems and you're asking yourselves whether they faithfully um, translate some CAD model into, a, uh, into, a, into some exchange form and then read it back in, the way in, in that case that you can test that is whether the geometry is correctly represented inside the system. Um, it would be nice to have some sense of, of that notion of deeper notion of validation and how that would um, play out in terms of translation of ontologies. Yeah. Yeah, is the model internally consistent and stuff like that? Um, yeah, that would be nice. I guess I might know my my. Um my main concern, again, as I mentioned, was was can can you import and then re-export and get the same thing back? But when you um, when you change something between the importation and the exportation, then uh, I, I I haven't simply thought about that, but it certainly sounds very complicated just to decide what's happening in that case. Right, but I mean the, the the most basic form of reading something in and writing it out is just to echo it, right? I mean, which doesn't 
doesn't risk anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm, 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 we're again we're discussing the translation, say between like KIF and Protege or something like that, which is more than just an echo. Uh, well, if it's if it's KIF to Protege back to KIF again, right? And you're just carrying everything as character strings. No, you're not carrying everything as character strings. But, but if you were, I mean that well, that would be. Okay, sure, yeah. sure. Well, but the other issue is that if there's a modification in the Protege environment, it could damage the. The, the the resulting GIF model. So right. That 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 that's the issue that Ray was raising, and it's correct. And um, that's something I guess you'd have to deal with. Uh, uh, so Pat, mm -hmm. in, in terms of just kind of this this touch base, do you have anything you want to say now, or have you said enough? Now, who? Pat. You. Pat. Oh yeah. No. No. I I I think I've said pretty much everything. I. Okay. Monica, any, any comments or thoughts at this moment? No, don't have any. Adam, we haven't heard from you for a while. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of wondering. I'm, I'm hearing different conversations going on and not getting resolution on, on the one point, which to me seems pretty obvious, which is that, you know, if you talk about representing something in a language, then any valid operations on that language shouldn't break the representation. And what we just heard from the protege folks is, you know, fairly much just reinforcing the point that I've been saying all along, that if you carry, uh, you know, KIF axioms that are not directly representable in, pro in OWL or in the protege language into a protege tool, you can then do all the operations you want, which are completely allowable within the specification of OWL or the protege uh, language, and you will essentially be breaking uh, the, the stuff that you've tried to pull in such that you will not be able to pull it back out. And the reason, of course, that you'll be breaking it is that you haven't captured the semantics because the target language doesn't allow you to capture those semantics. You're just pulling the axioms along as a string, which means nothing in the target language. And so that's why this, these translations are, in fact, lossy. And, and I'm, I'm continually amazed that, that you know, what I'm saying here should be even remotely controversial when it's just obviously evident. Well, one, one question um, uh, I would have is whether um, there is a KIF file editing system that or, uh, that automatically does the kind of validation checking uh, that is done at least within uh, the, the protege paradigm by the protege program. Um, I, I guess I wasn't aware that one existed. Uh, and if one does, I'd certainly like to get hold of it. Well, but that, but we're not, I'm not talking about programs again. We're talking about languages. We're talking about the meaning of languages. No, but you, you were talking about the protege program not validating anything that's changed. Sure, but but, the, but a, a text editor doesn't either. When you're, if, you're, if you're editing a KIF file, the text editor doesn't validate what you're doing. You right, not. I'm not claiming it does. What's your point? Well, what I'm, what I'm trying to understand is if, you're, if your point is that here, here you have your KIF file now translated uh, into Protege with something that's translated as strings, and you're saying, gee, you can make changes in Protege, and, and that and that uh, invalidates the um, the logic of your language. Yeah, 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 that's true. But if you have your KIF file in a text editor and you make changes, you can also okay. Well, let me do things that, that invalidate the logic. So I'm not I'm not sure why 
you know, where what is what is it about uh, the native KIF ASCII KIF file representation that makes it superior to the ASCII strings in a protege file? Okay, so let me let me restate this without the programs because I guess that's confusing the issue for you. So, if you translate KIF into OWL, for example, mm -hmm. you are then you do some operations, for example, in a text editor mm -hmm. that are consistent with the syntax and the semantics of the OWL language. Mm -hmm. And when you try to take that file and translate it back into KIF, even if you've done, done things in OWL which are allowed, you will not necessarily wind up with the same content back in KIF. Because although you've been conforming to the semantics of OWL when you've been working with the OWL version, you haven't been conforming to necessarily to the semantics of KIF. You could wind up with logical inconsistencies in the day after the translation. But in logical inconsistencies, sure. you could do things just from a syntactic standpoint. That you know, once you have, for example, a KIF rule that is a comment in OWL, I mean, you can add white space in random places, like in the middle of terms. And you're still conforming to the OWL spec because it's just a comment. It doesn't mean anything in OWL. And it doesn't matter whether you do that manipulation in a text editor, in Protege, or whatever, or if you do it on paper. The issue isn't the program that's doing it. It's the issue of the semantics, the definition of the meaning of the language. And so that's why simply carrying the axioms, simply carrying rules along from a KIF file into a comment in OWL, again, has nothing to do with the program. It, it simply is just a fact of the representational capabilities or lack of such in these various logical languages. I, I, well, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because part of what I found very useful today is in getting Adam to, to describe his issues more precisely. But at the same time, there's a way that you phrase it, I think, is part of what causes at least me to have pause. And it's the idea that you can't represent it you know, because there's an issue with it. So what I'm hearing you describe is a variety of quality issues and even risks associated with these various representations. But it, in your mind, in the way you express it, you say it's not a representation and you can't express it because of these issues. Like yeah, it's not a quality issue. It's not a risk issue. It's just an issue of mathematics. It's an issue of can or can't. It's binary. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't see it reducing down to that binary Quite as quite as completely or thoroughly as you do. Hmm. Well, I mean, the way I think about wish it, I could my point across more clearly because it is is strictly an issue of mathematics. It's as though you have, you know, if gosh, I wish there were a good analogy in mathematics, but it, you know, it's not a question of of is it good enough or can I deal with it. it it's simply a question of it's just mathematically not there. When you do this translation, you haven't expressed it. You've just carried along a comment string. I, I think I, I know what you're referring to in, in going from from KIF to OWL um, from a from a modeling uh, practices point of view. So I, if I'm not mistaken, within OWL, um, if I want to make a reference from one class to another, um, I define a a property in OWL that say like has um, has property, let's say, and uh, in KIF, I would actually link through a relation type, 
which could then have um, multiple connections to um, other types. And that well, let's, let's take just a simpler example. Let's take logical implications. If A, then B, OWL itself does not have that logical operator. Right. So uh, if you express that axiom, if A, then B, in OWL, the only way you can do it is in a character string. And if and then, or, or you know, equals greater than sign in KIF, has no logical meaning. It has no semantics in OWL. It means nothing. It's just exactly the same as food. And so you know, you can put some white space in between the F and the first O, and you haven't broken the semantics of a string in OWL. But if you interpret it or want to interpret it as KIF, yes, you have broken the semantics. And so that's why you can do manipulations in this target translation and and break things because you haven't carried any of the semantics along with you. You haven't represented it in any way. You've merely transliterated a picture of it that means nothing in the target language. Okay. Uh, so so now I uh, suppose I have a KIF file. Okay, and I have my foo. I put a little white space between the F and the O, and and the text editor doesn't complain. Um, now. Uh, I, I've also broken the semantics of the KIF file. Now, but the only way you can determine whether you've broken it or not is to run it through the KIF validator. No, that's not necessarily true. I well, mean, how? Well, so again, so this is an issue that Chris Menzel was trying to explain, and maybe I guess it didn't, still didn't come across. You know, and and I <laughs> I you know, it, it, it seems somewhat reminiscent of you know, if the tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound if no one's there to hear it? You know. 2 and plus and equals and 4 all mean something regardless of whether there is a human or a process there to interpret them. The mathematical truth is, is universal and present regardless of whether there's some no, agent no, there no. interpreting it. See, that, that, that's where we disagree. Uh, the symbols don't mean squat until a person defines them. Uh, well, then you're at odds with, with most of philosophy as far as I understand it. Um, I, I thought we came to that... that uh, Chris and I came to an agreement that the mapping process is is, is what, what what changes a bunch of symbols into a bunch of meanings. No, no, that's actually not what he said. Well, I won't I won't I won't try to re repeat what he said. Um, but but couldn't you address these issues by like setting out some sort of modeling guidelines? Like if you are editing the the, the kit in a text editor then the modeling guidelines would say don't put the space in. And in the same um, same way, if you're working with a KIF model within Protege, um, could you not say within your modeling guidelines, don't do this or do things this way? And um, that will ensure that when you try to process it um, in KIF, it's going to work properly. I mean, uh -huh. from my own point of view, I'd be quite happy um, with, with something like that. Um, that would say, you know, if you if you're going between one format and another, and you're working with it in, say, format B, if you want to work, if you want to use it in format A again, you have to conform to um, these sorts of modeling practices. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's a practical solution. What you're essentially doing is layering one language on top of another, much in the same way that you know OWL is layered on RDF. Okay. So, so. You know, OWL conforms to RDF, but it adds some additional semantics. If you if you look at it just as an RDF file, or for example, for that matter, as, as an XML file, 
and you're not carrying the semantics of OWL with you, then you're allowed to do things in OWL or in the RDF or in XML that are, that are at odds with the semantics of the language that's layered on top of it. So in the same way, if you want to have you know, a KIF file represented in Protege and you want to layer on top of the Protege language KIF semantics that says, you know, equals uh, greater than sign does have meaning, it does have semantics, and it has semantics according to the interpretation of the KIF spec, and therefore you're not allowed to add some extra white space in there, uh, then, uh, then that's okay. But, but you know, fundamentally, you haven't represented, any, haven't represented that in Protege. You merely have layered the KIF language on top of Protege. But, but I guess I would see it as not being kind of an all or nothing sort of thing. Like I might be able to carry over semantically a lot of the concepts from KIF into Protege, and there may be a mapping. Um, for those concepts, um, and as long as you know that's what I want to consume in Protege is those those KIF concepts, um, and I'm not terribly interested in um, maybe the logical expressions that are, that are defined there, but it's useful for me to use within Protege. Um, as long as I know if I am going to modify that uh, non uh, Proje or non-OWL uh, information from KIPP, um, if, I, if I have to conform to certain modeling guidelines, you know, that would be an acceptable solution, I think. As long as, you know, you've saved a lot of time in, in trying to carry over the, if the, uh, um, the modeling KIPP to, to OWL, if you can you obviously have some sort of input tool which carries over a lot of the semantics that are there. I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. We're pretty much at, I think, the final completion point. James, are you still around? Yeah, this is James speaking, actually. Oh, that was your voice? Yes, it was him. Yeah. Oh, I was going to ask you to jump in, but you had already done it. Okay. Um, in that case, Peter, thoughts? Which one? Yim. Okay. Uh, no, I, I, I think it has been an extremely interesting session. Uh, I had wish we could do some slightly more concrete work, uh, like I mean taking the CCT wrap uh, export task one step further, uh, but evidently we didn't have a lot of chance this time. But uh, I would still hope that we could structure structure it so that we can actually practically uh, take the CCT ontology and start uh, spitting it out into different representations and see what uh, the rest of the world, uh, how the rest of the world would react to it. I mean, uh, still, I mean, if we could put that into UML class diagrams and and taxonomies and and uh, XML schemas uh, that that definitely would we would be able to draw more people into uh, starting to get interested in what uh, technologies can do. Oh, question, Adam. Has anybody uh, converted uh, Sumo into a UML graph? Um, so there was a guy very early in the in the Sumo project, uh, Chris Fitilla, uh, and actually have his his report is posted on the Sumo site. 
uh, where he tried to do just that. So, but, but Peter, to just address your comment, um, I mean, I still have a concern, though, that when we translate out CCT to these other formats, you know, we'll be getting uh, just the taxonomic information, which will miss the compelling part of most of the argument that I think we've had for why we'd want to do this work, which is to give these terms a precise meaning. And so, you know, if we wind up translating out, yeah, we might get a larger community to pay attention, but after they've paid attention to the model, they'll say, well, this is no better than the original. But I, I think we can turn it to our advantage. We, we do that in uh, translation, do it, map it out, and then state, mm -hmm. I mean, these are the information that is lost in this translation. But this is one format you guys are extremely familiar with and, 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 and could understand. And look, I mean, this is what is missing. That's Even why you need... Uh, or you need a first-order logic uh, representation. Peter, I'm gonna, I, you, you've got me. I'm going to close with a story. Okay, close. Kurt's going to go back into story mode. It's another Bozak story. And it's when Bozak launched the XML initiative inside W3C. And we were all SGML geeks, and, you know, got to have the DTD, and the data's got to be valid, because if it isn't valid, it's, you know, inherently problematic and just isn't real. Um, in fact, the tone of it sounds very much like the position Adam takes on this debate. So I, th I think I can understand it. And I'm sitting there at the Santa Clara Conference Center. I hadn't seen Bozak in a long time. He says, Kurt, guess what we're doing in XML? He says, what? We're making the DTD optional. And my jaw dropped. I went, how can you do that? He said, well, we're only going to require the documents to be well-formed. just have to have a good hierarchy. And I said, but it's going to break everything. He says, exactly. This is a training program for people to understand why they need DTDs, and, you know today even schemas. So, you know, it's happened before and it's been successful. You put it out, you know it's going to break, you warn people, they break it, they stub their toes, they learn the importance, they mature, they grow up, they become human. Well, but if they're people that aren't, aren't wedded to XML and that this thing breaks and all of a sudden then it doesn't have all these wonderful attributes that everybody's been claiming for XML, like, some, like syntactic interoperability, they may also just say, oh, this stuff is junk, I'm going to do something else. That's the risk. But yeah, if we but properly documented it, I mean, I, I don't think the risk is there. We just turn it to our advantage. Make, 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 sure that, make sure the risks are explicit and people understand the boundaries. And I think, and I think well, actually one of the things about XML, which, which has surprised me even, is by stripping down the complicated SGML standard into a usable subset, We've seen increased use, and in the corollary has been through time that the enhanced performance, which was expected of SGML, couldn't be delivered on that platform because it was the, the learning curve. The cost for implementation was too high, but we have seen those implemented on the XML platform because you get in at a much lower price point and, and be able then to make those other investments as appropriate. Uh, can, may I comment? Sure. Uh, uh, it, uh, to Peter's, Peter Yim's point, I think it would be valuable to document it. I see it as an opportunity in the context of your guys' discussion. And a, a primary example will be, uh, say, if you take some of the work in the business process execution language, and they've had some real challenges using XML, but they have very much chosen to leave some of the operational semantics outside of the schema for a very direct reason, because 
uh, it gets back to some of the discussion about natural language. And if you can use it as an opportunity to say this isn't a mechanism to show how you could express this in a meaningful manner and automate it, someone might listen to you. And I'm not saying nobody's listening. I'm just saying the community that I'm talking about as it relates to some of the folks that are involved in this activity that I was just referencing. Because they don't want to put the operational semantics in a computable form. There's been a decision not to do that. So the opportunity is to show them ways that they could that would be effective for their use. Do they really not want to do it, or is it just that they They haven't... didn't want. They chose not to. Hmm. And that was based on, I'm assuming, Monica, the technology platforms and the representational capabilities, the relative cost, all of those factors. Uh, some of it has to do with keeping uh, the representation and the barrier to entry for its use at a manageable level. Right. And, and that's not really, uh, uh, I don't think it's indicative of schema. It's more so indicative of the fact that they, you have to look to the barrier of entry of, of it being actually used in, a, in, a, in an operational production um, uh, environment. Well, and the other factor I don't think would be too heavily discounted is that for a lot of these business documents, uh, there's enough commonality of understanding that semantics can be largely implied because someone's going to pick up the thing on the other end. They're going to effectively recognize it and know what to do with it without it all being spelled out. So I, th I think that's probably a good, an important factor as well. Well, I think some of it has to do with uh, the folks, at least in that, that group, which all of them are extremely technical. I'm probably the most analyst type person in that group, except for maybe one or two others, um, they, they're looking at the fact that they look at a structure, and they also have um, uh, human understandable uh, ideas around it. And the ideas and the concepts around it is where the decision was made not to automate some of those ideas. Right. So. Almost a semantic architecture. I'm just looking at it from an analyst perspective. Keep it simple. Well, I think I, I'm I'm feeling that I'm worn out. Uh, anybody have anything they feel compelled to jump in and put on the table at this point? I just have one one other comment. Mm -hmm. um, in in uh, wanting to attend this conference call, I was really uh, anxious to hear what uh, what sort of approaches uh, people might take for um, solving this. Um, mapping problem or, or um, conversion problem, and uh, I was interested to hear if, if anyone would suggest um, coming up with a, a common language that cuts across all of these different representational formalisms and describes, like um, maybe axiomatically, what is a type, and um, within each within each uh, representation. Um, what are what are the concepts that you can pull out of all of them, encoding that into some sort of ontology and using that as sort of the basis to go forward from for uh, doing this conversion project? Yeah, well, there's I mean there's a couple options there. So I mean the, the most common one actually is the roots of KIF is that it you know, was intended to be a common interchange format, and the way to get some, a common interchange for languages is to take the greatest common denominator of expressivity of all the languages you want to translate so that you don't lose anything in the translation. 
And so one option is simply to use KIF itself because it already can represent everything that is in these less expressive languages. Now there is another option which is actually to look at the language level itself and create a language for doing mappings between these. And that's been the focus of, of an effort uh, in category theory representation that although elegant, I don't believe anybody's made any operational uh, use of that. So I have a little bit, I have, I have respect for it as a theoretical exercise, but not as a practical solution. So I think the practical solution is, you know, simply represent things in KIF and you'll be able to say everything you need in all the other languages as well. Yeah, and then as far as um, actually then going forward and processing on that, would you then be able to like bring in a an arbitrary UML diagram, for example, and or UML representation, and, and process it through KIF and output um, to some other uh, language representation? Well, so the issue is is never going up in representation. It's you know it's. And it's theoretically straightforward, although there's always that simple matter of programming to actually write the code. Um, it's always theoretically possible to move up the language chain and you know import from UML to KIF, for example. But then when you want to translate back out, um, you're, you may lose something unless you have uh, a particular theory that doesn't make use of uh, representational constructs that are not expressible in the less expressive languages. There's no guarantee that when you after you translate up to KIF, that when you go back out to something else, that you won't lose something. Uh, uh, perhaps it's an opportunity to to in doing the exercise you guys are talking about to validate your assumption that KIF KIF is the ultimate authority. And I'm not saying it is or isn't because I don't know if it is or isn't. I'm not. I, I'm just saying it, it 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 puts to the challenge to verify that's true. Well, we should have brought up in this discussion common logic because it seems to me a lot of the things that you first mentioned are are really the some of the goals of common logic not so yeah, I mean, KIF. common logic is sort of the successor of KIF I mean it, it's an attempt to have uh, an even broader language than KIF and also not to be wedded to a particular syntax but rather to start out by defining an abstract syntax so you know suo KIF uh, is a, a common logic compliant language and so if there are going to be languages uh, other than SUO-KIF at the first order or higher level of expressiveness, then sure, you'd want an even broader language uh, and more powerful language like Common Logic. So can I, can I assume, uh, Adam, that, that by saying KIF you mean that whole class of uh, representations that sort of uh, grounds in first-order logic? Well, maybe at times I've been imprecise about it, so, um, you know, it depends on the context of our conversation. For the context of uh, the capability of translating between languages, I've been saying KIF very broadly because the distinctions between common logic and SUO-KIF don't really matter. The main point is simply that they're significantly more expressive than the other languages that we're talking about, and so the problems I've been talking about with lossy translation are applicable there. Then, then when when would you draw the line between, let's say, common logic and anything that is compliant with common logic? I mean, you can come in and say KIF is, and uh, Duck Leonard can come in and say Psych L is. Well, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, and of course, it's quite another matter to, to actually show it. 
Um, you know, I would presume that Dykel might be common logic compliant, but of course the semantics for a lot of his predicates uh, and language constructs have never been published, and so you know, you'd, you'd have to have somebody for the inside corp actually do that mapping and, sh and show us that it's true. Right, it's a proprietary language, a proprietary system. But I, I would expect that if that work is done to express uh, what the, the semantics of those language constructs are, that it would undoubtedly be possible to, uh, to express them in common logic. So there's both a theoretical issue and a practical issue, that's all. So, so back to Peter Dano's point is, I mean, why say KIF and not say common logic? That's fine. I mean, it just depends on the conversation. Maybe I've been a little bit sloppy because it doesn't really matter for the context of the conversations we've been having. But if we're going to talk about, you know, a, a work plan or something, um, then absolutely we have to be specific. Good point. Good. So in terms of, of getting, like, some sort of actual mapping then or, like, a... Uh, a lookup table of sorts, um, would it be reasonable to start uh, putting together a KIF model of the other uh, representations like SQL and, um, and UML and so on and say, this is what, it, what a type is in KIF and this is what a type is in SQL and this is what it is in um, UML? Yeah, that'd be a great thing to do. I mean, it would take a lot of work. James, are, are you caught up with, let's say, our work in uh, CCT Rep, the, that particular project where we had uh, Adam had actually mapped uh, the the core core component types to Sumo? No, I haven't looked at that. Oh, that I mean, some of the links in today's meeting actually points back to that, and, and, okay. and that's actually part of the exercise. We we had actually trying to do exactly what you're mentioning. Okay. Uh, pick a language, map it there, try to export it into all these common uh, representations, and hopefully uh, take advantage of that exercise to bring this to mainstream. Yeah, I definitely want to take a look at that. Yeah. Want to wrap up now? Kurt. Um, <clears throat> I feel wrapped. <laughs> but people keep talking. So the question is, are we? Are you guys done, or are you not done? I think we're about done. It's too late. <laughs> okay, so I'm calling it wrapped by by edict of consensus. That's a wrap. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you yep. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.